for the audience, whether you're a business customer or consumer, the next five to 10 years are just going to be amazing. I've seen what's coming and it just gets better and better. The world beyond. The emotion is of tomorrow. Brought to you by Michael Mack. Hello and welcome back to my podcast, Well Beyond the Emotion Years of Tomorrow. Today I'm very excited to be joined in person here at Studio 78 at Europa Park by no one other than Roni Abovitz. Welcome back, Roni, to my podcast. Hello, Michael. I'm really glad to be here. When we met each other back in the days, um, you did Dr. Chi in an IP, which was like the first actually game on a, on a Magic Leap um, headset, wasn't it? I think it was the first AAA like triple A quality, movie quality game for immersive experiences like that. And the, the number of simultaneous innovations, I think what we were doing with Richard's team at Weta is like still 10 years ahead of where the, where the market is. Um, they were able to scan multiple rooms, have AI animated characters hiding on the real chairs. Um, I don't know if you remember Gimbal, who yeah. was this little, yeah. but Gimbal looked so solid. He looked like a sculpture made out of metal People would touch him and he's like, he's not real, but he almost looked as real as his microphone floating in front of us, except there were no strings and he would, but know where you were and go under things and he would be hidden by the table and he would cast shadows and the number of just continuous innovation. But here's the part I'm going to give Richard and the Weta team a lot of props. The team at Weta had no right to be this good at it. It was like, you know, they had not, they had no formal training in what we were doing. They were just making it all up as they were going, as we were. So it's two teams making it all up, working together halfway across the globe, sharing the same ideas and partially sharing the same brain. It was really cool. I mean, it was fascinating. I still remember coming back from um, Florida, giving the first magic leap to my children, <laughs> and they loved playing Dr. Crobot or Dr. Chi. So it was an amazing technology. If you, uh, I mean, describe a little bit the path you've been doing, and you did a magic leap. You had the one, as you were mentioning, trying to um, sum it up for the ones who are not familiar with the technology and what we're talking about. So you had a, a two coming out, and how did the company go in those years you've been um, responsible and leading? the company yeah so um I, i was the founder and, and ceo from like 2010 through summer of 2020 uh, then i was a board member for a year and then i then i basically left to go start new things uh, and i helped recruit my successor a uh, woman named peggy and she was the number two at our top rival at microsoft so we're this big we're tiny our main competitor in what we were doing was microsoft which at the time i brought peggy in they were a 1.6 trillion dollar company trillion us dollars and then i convinced you know we basically convinced her to leave microsoft and, and become my successor which is kind of a really interesting thing but um yeah for anyone who's listening uh, we shipped our first system which was shrunken down hundreds of times from our original prototype um, and now when people look at things um, more and more things are following that path but we were one of the very first in the world to put all these pieces together just to get a sense of the innovation um, I would say more than 5,000 approaching 10,000 global patents. I can't give you the exact number because it's uh, confidential. But if you look on the Internet, you'll see people surmising those kind of numbers. So we had that many inventions, uh, simultaneous inventions to build um, from kind of scratch what was happening at Magic Leap. Uh, so just if you think about the complexity of that system, it was small. But we had a system engineering lead who came from NASA 
he had actually launched rockets and he said, you have as much system complexity probably as the Saturn V, which kind of freaked me out. And I'm like, don't tell anybody that. Um, because all just, it was all miniaturized. And I think now you see the amount of money companies like Meta are spending. They spend three to four billion US dollars every three months and have probably spent 40 to 60 billion US over a decade. Magically raised uh, over three billion. So it's a huge amount of money. But our competitors are outspending us 10 or 20x. Like what we did in a decade, they spend every three months. So at some point, I realized we're in a game of superpowers. Like, you know, we're a startup, we're in a superpower game. But um, the original question, we, we shipped a developer unit. I wasn't completely happy with it. It was the first thing. You have to ship something, I think, if you don't ship. Yeah. So in 2018, we put something out. You got to try that, the creator edition. I just wanted to put it in, in people's hands. Just give it to gamers, developers, companies, uh, surgical companies, everybody. My friend uh, Stefan at Brain Lab, he got units. He did amazing things with it. I'm like, let's see what people do. And then they're going to tell us what they want the Gen 2 and Gen 3 to be. So we got a lot of feedback and the Gen 2 system was already in development before we even shipped the Gen 1 and we refined it based on that feedback. We made it a lot smaller. We increased the field of view. We invented the idea to put black, basically black um, opacity control and augmented reality, which everyone thought was impossible, but we did that. And it shipped uh, the, the Magically 2, which is much closer, not final, but much closer to the vision of what we, when you and I met, uh, that was really much better expression of the vision. We also had in the labs, I, I, we might have shown you this, we had like the generation three and the generation four and the generation five, but all these teams working in parallel trying to invent the next uh, 10, 15 years of, of spatial computing. So are you still um, connected to, to Magic, if I might ask? I, I have some shares and no. my friends who work there and I want the company to succeed and seeing the Magic Leap 2 ship uh, was just very exciting. You know, because I had so many brilliant people work on it for so long. And it did finally get good recognition, right? When people saw it, 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 it won a bunch of design awards. It won the, in the U.S. something called the Augmented World Expo. It won the top system, best in show. Time Magazine named it a top invention of 2022. So it was good to see all these people's work, the original team and some of the people who are there now, um, getting the recognition for, as an independent startup, you know, competing with some of the biggest companies that it, it sort of uh, is in the game and is, I think, really one of the only independent companies that has a chance to compete against Apple and Microsoft and Google and those kind of companies. Which kind of surprises me being European. I mean, we are uh, mostly family-based companies and not corporate like the U.S. I was just wondering while listening to you, I mean, if you have so strong enemies, call it like that, <laughs> why wouldn't they just come out and knock your door and say like, be a part of Meta, be a part of Apple? I'm going to dance around the question, but I'll answer it. Um, and I'll answer it in a couple of ways. In my new startups, my plan is to never give control to any investor, which I think you, being the eighth generation of a family business, know how important it is to have the culture and ethics and values and what you want be handed off from generation to generation. So I, yeah, I, I do think that's a very good model because you can have that. Um, I can say we had offers along the way that would have changed the lives of everyone who worked there. But when you have investors who are worth hundreds of billions of dollars, sometimes multi-trillion dollar funds, exits that would have been incredibly positive for the team are like, eh, they're like, go for it. And, and the idea was go for it, go for it. But also they had the overriding votes. So we went for it. Then the pandemic happened, which was like a little bit of a 
flying an airplane through a Category 5 hurricane. <laughs> so if you look at Magic Leap, you've been telling me when we met in Annecy a couple of weeks ago, you've been telling me that you just put up a great experience in New York, I guess, that you did an amazing experience, which is up running right now. And I think it was a museum. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, this is, this is really cool. I think... In June of 23, July of 23, if you go to um, a museum in New York, my friend Alex Poots is a creative director. It's called The Shed, The Shed New York City. It's one of the most amazing museums in the United States, maybe one of the most progressive in the world. And he designed it to be the warehouse for future art, future digital art and experience. And the, the team called Tin Drum which is related to a famous uh, uh, German book, The Tin Drum. So a guy named Todd Eckert, who produced the movie Control about Joy Division. And he worked for us for a period of time. He was a very creative producer. So he worked with the, uh, a composer who composed the, last, the music for The Last Emperor, a brilliant Japanese composer. And for two years, they were building the most amazing experience with him. And part of it brings him to, to life as a full detailed hologram. And unfortunately, he passed away this March, which made this piece more profound. So if you go to the shed... An entire audience all put on a Magic Leap system. There's incense created by the composer that fills the space. And then he just appears. Incredibly realistic, full-size, and plays hidden compositions no one's ever heard. And it's one of the more unbelievable artistic uses of spatial computing in the planet. So if you want to really understand art and spatial computing, what's going on at the shed right now, if you go online, you can actually see some video, but nothing will replace uh, actually seeing it in person. So it's really cool to see that this crazy technology we built is enabling new art like that to appear. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we can talk for hours and hours, and I think... Uh, I think we will. Over yeah, dinner, yeah, over dinner, yeah. Richard will uh, call us in a minute and say, like, oh, here he comes with an e-card driving past at Europa Park while the park is shot, waving to us. Um, what do you think where Magic Leap is going? Um, do you think they want to put out a headset three, four, like if you can dance around a little bit without telling everything? But what do you think is the future of this kind of technology? Let me do this. One, out of respect for Peggy, and I won't give away any things that I might have set in motion should. before she took over, but I'll just speculate as someone now outside the company about the future um, and, and everything we handed her. Where it goes, I would say between 2023 and 2030, utterly amazing. Just the knowledge base of getting Gen 1 and then Gen 2 and then future generations compounding. And I think... It's true for Magic Leap, but it's also true for Apple, true for Meta. The teams that are very serious are really understanding now all the issues. And once you put out, you know, prototypes, but two major releases, you learn so much that I think for the audience, whether you're a business customer or consumer, the next five to 10 years are just going to be amazing. I've seen what's coming and it just gets better and better. So um, you think you think that the technology, because like... By talking to people in Germany, you think like, yeah, Mita was nice. No, every, everybody's speculating on the Apple um, um, device, but I, which I, in, a, in a way I think it helps the market. Um, but if I'm talking to my dad, being a 74, he thinks like, yeah, there's all just like little play around things. But so you, so you would think that there's a great future for those technologies. Oh, oh my God. The way I would describe it, Michael, if you look at the evolution of the personal computer. The first ones were big and then very expensive, and then they ended up on everyone's desk. But that took 25, 30 years. 
And then the mobile phone, you know, your dad probably had one of the first mobile phones in the Nokia, car. The Nokia ones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, and then now every kid has an iPhone or an Android phone. So I think like the speed to that scale is going to be faster in spatial computing, but just for, for the listeners for a time frame, you know, I think it's not till early 2030s till we see a billion units. So right now there's about 30 million worldwide AR VR systems and I'm I'm basically putting it out there. I think early 2030s we see over a billion. So I think if you look at that curve, it's going to be an incredible decade. So um, I'm going to play that um, that part to my dad. <laughs> um, coming back to um, what interests me um, a lot is like you being a visionary in technology, you've been inventing so much amazing stuff. You put Richard in with Vita Workshop, um, putting a story to it. I'm a bit afraid that more and more like platforms dominate technology and also dominates the market share. Do you think we can compete to those multi-billion platforms being out there, whether it's TikTok, whether it's been Meta? I mean, there's so much coming up. Um, I mean, you can be having the best story, you can have the best technology, but if you don't have the distribution of a platform, isn't it going to be difficult to um, distribute then the technology and the content? I'll put out some things. I think this is also inspiring being here and seeing what you do at Europa Park. I think there's companies that are just enormously well-funded and gigantic. But I also think there's companies that are craft-based, artisanal, where the people around them realize, like, it could be because of local or could they just really appreciate the depth that company does because they're smaller and the care they get put in. I think more and more the new generation, like the Generation Z, which is like teenagers and, and people in their 20s, are realizing they want that touch. They want companies that have a social component. They can feel there's real people interacting with them. So I think we might see a backlash. And we're seeing it right now with, like I have an AI startup, which is doing something completely different from the big AI companies. But two of the three inventors, the founders of modern AI are coming out against you know, the, the, the monstrous AIs that are there, they're just too big. They're too uncontrollable. So I think what's maybe a, a, a good message for smaller teams, smaller groups, is that maybe the human mind is not meant to dominate so much. It, it is not meant to be so big. In fact, in evolutionary biology, we're really tribes of two or 300 people, like your family, somewhat extended. That's who we can relate to. So when you get too big, you lose that human touch. We don't know what's happening. It's an unstable system. Maybe we get back to smaller, more local, more craft-based things. I hope that happens. Well, that's what I hope as well. I mean, we have a roller coaster as a platform, so well, we put our standard headsets on, but um, it's certainly something we have to look at. And uh, I'm honored to um, call you as a close person to my advising me which technology to use in the future experience of a theme park. Anytime. Thank you. Before we stop our interview, I like our talk, which was inspiring. Let me um, ask you a little bit about the Hour Blue. I mean, mm. it was fascinating when you announced it for the first time at Annecy in France um, um, a couple of days ago together with Richard on stage. And you've been talking about that, the idea of our blue sits in your mind since you were a child. I'm so thrilled and interested to hear what is behind the our blue. I'm really glad you brought that. That's a great question. Um, some projects are very personal, like they burn in you. And it's like a, a story that I knew needed time to mature. 
and that time to mature really required me having adventures, having experiences, meeting characters in the real world who I knew were characters from that story. So it's, it's a way to express both a creative imagined world, but also one that has realism in it through real experience. I think great stories have to feel like someone lived in them a little bit. You know, they could be made up and imagined, but I think some of the best ones remember the author has put something of themselves and their own life into it. And when I met Richard, I was at the beginning of that, realizing like, how do I, I'm thinking about it. It feels like a little thin because I haven't had all those experiences yet. And now after having gone through Magic Leap and all kinds of crazy adventures, I feel like I can really put things, you know, reshape them. But there's an element of like someone who lived in it. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a set of characters in the Hour Blue called the Moravecian Kings. You saw them. But how can you write about a king if you've never met a king? And through Magic Leap, I met a king. I met a prince. I met an emir. Now I understand it. Like, I met them myself. I spent time with them. It was crazy. I never thought my whole life I would ever have that experience. But when you do... It's completely different from what you think. It's not through watching on television or even reading a book. So that experience feeds your ability to really make an audience, whether it's through film or even a story world like we described, know that you've been there. And I think that's, even though it's a fictional world, that experience of meeting a king, I can now put into that story. Wow. <laughs> How can I best, I mean, if I'm coming home tonight and, uh, and talking to my kids, How can I explain them in two sentences? What is Our Blue? The essence of Our Blue, it's really about my daughter. When she was born, I was thinking she's such a tiny thing and the world's such a scary, dangerous place. And all these horrible things are going on. And can she grow up thinking that somebody small and seemingly powerless can actually change the whole world? And that was the seed of the whole thing. So it's about not being afraid and feeling no matter who you are, you can approach the biggest powers on, on the planet, the biggest powers in the universe. And because you have that humility, but also that sense of things can be better, that you can ultimately make that change. And that's, that was the heart of the whole story. So you're creating this world, oh, Blue. What, what comes into your mind? Is it going to be a, a movie? Is it going to be a metaverse? Is it going to be anything on, on wanted reality? What can people experience in the Hour Blue and how can they access it and when will it be accessible? And I mean, there's so much questions popping in my head. So I imagined uh, an idea of a story world. We talked about this at ANSI, which was if you inflated a movie with more than a two-dimensional thing, like a rich world in all directions, like, like a real country almost with a history that goes on for hundreds and thousands of years, from that container will come many things. Our current strategy is we're putting out some short films, which gives people a taste. I'm halfway through finishing the first book of The Hour Blue. We're going to do some immersive location-based things, which are less of a ride and more of like going to a real place and having a tiny taste of like peering into the world. But the way I see it, uh, over the course of three feature films, three animated feature films, as we release those films, we're building the persistent, sustained world. And between film one and two, you'll be able to visit the world for a little bit. Between film two and film three, the world is open and it doesn't stop. And after film three, the world takes a life of its own. 
And then at some point it starts to write itself. But we've set it on the path, we've given it the core stories, we've given it its mythology, so it has something to grow from. But then I feel like we go from being the farmers planting seeds to watering it and trimming and making sure the weasels aren't there and taking care of the gardener. But we become gardeners watching this, this plant grow very tall. And that's, that's my hope and dream. When you look on a timeline, can you say like when that all is going to happen? If it all goes well, pre-production concept development of the first films are sort of happening right now and simultaneously designing and developing the world. Richard and his team have made thousands and thousands of beautiful pieces of concept art, short videos. We have like thousands of pages of story. Uh, so it's a huge thing. And now that I've been able to dedicate much more time to building it and the sort of sister AI company, which will help fuel it, um, predicting exactly when the first film comes out, I'll tell you my wish. Uh, I hope within two or three years from now, we could be having an opening. That would be amazing. What I loved about you saying, like, it's some of the students in NSC ask you, but why wouldn't you call it Blue Hour? And you were mentioning because it's our blue. Um, I think that you mentioning that the third phase of it, that everybody can be a part of it, can contribute their own content to that world. Yeah, we have a unique structure that's different from like Roblox, right, which is a user generated content world. What we're doing is in the center, a brilliant world-class creative team. Some of the folks we're bringing into my team, Sun and Thunder, Richard's team at Weta, other amazing collaborators. So a really brilliant world-class creative team of human beings. The second layer is what we call a DAO, a distributed autonomous organization. So people from around the world who might have talent, they're artisans, they're artists, they're writers, coders who want to contribute, who are willing to contribute within the structure and the design language and the mythology of the Hour Blue. So work with us in building out. And the last layer is the most exciting. I founded a company called Synthbee Inc., which is a really radically different kind of AI company to amplify the work of those groups in the middle and co-mingle with real people's work, but give us the power of like a million person team. Right? That's where it gets exciting. Like something no studio could ever fund using the unique AI we're building, you could suddenly have the power of like having a million people working or 10 million people working. So I think the next decade is going to be amazing, exciting from the, if you have the craftsman in the middle amplified by AI, I think we're going to do things, not just us, but really innovative creators will do things we've never seen before. Wow. So I am, I'm happy to have you back in a couple of months <laughs> or years to tell me how it all went and um, the project you've been developing so far. Is there anything before I'm asking you my last question you want to mention? Well, I just, I so honored to be here. Uh, it's my first time at Europa Park. So I'm like a three-year-old kid seeing everything with fresh eyes. Like you've seen it probably since you were born. Um, but to me, today was like the very first time when I was a little kid going to Disney World. And, you know, now I've been there a bunch of times, took my daughter. I understand that I know it. This was like being three, four years old again. Everything was new. And it was like a part of my brain waking up. And I felt like a little kid. Uh, it was just really, really incredible. Thank you very much. That's why we're going to ask my last question to have some more time at Europa Park and um, driving with an e-card through my childhood and um, past to explain you what Europa Park is. Seven years from now. Which innovations and changes do you predict we will see in the creative technological field in seven years? In seven years, I think we'll see computing intelligence blended with sensors 
in ways that we feel a organic realism to new media experiences. We're getting closer to that, but we know they're synthetic. And I think there's a point where we leave the uncanny valley and we really feel like we have entered from a touch and smell and taste and sensing level and a visual level. Uh, we can conjure amazing experiences that change how we feel in dramatic ways and can do positive things. I feel like that's going to come to a really wonderful, not a peak, but a, a very good place, just like a, where we cross many lines of what I call neurologic reality, where your brain is just believing it completely. I think that's going to be in the next seven years. Should human being be afraid of that? Not afraid, but smart. I think being afraid, you run around with your head like the sky's falling, but I think being smart and being responsible and ethical, you could take something like that and, and use it to be a wonderful way to open up minds and have creative journey. You could also abuse it. So I think if you do deliver that, you have to have Like you have safety for your roller coasters and you care, you know, everything has to be right. That same level of care and managing risk and ethics, if you apply it here, you could do wonderful things. Excellent. So thank you very much, Ronnie. That was a very inspiring talk with you. And I'm looking forward to spend the rest of the evening um, in the Bell Rock Hotel together with you. Michael, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, I really, really enjoyed you. You're an awesome, awesome interviewer. Thank you very much. Thank you. Michael Mann presents... The world beyond. The emotion is of tomorrow. A Mac One production.